Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. Good morning. Good morning. Wow, you guys are, are, there's more people here than first service, but it's more tame. The first time, the first time Angie said, go say hello, welcome people to church. Um, I was standing up here for like 45 seconds just saying, all right, it's fine to see it's fine to see. All right, good to have you this morning. And they just kept talking, but you guys are ready to go. All right. Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel Darneau. Uh, my wife and I are proud parents of the cutest little six-and-a-half-month-old named Luca. She's back there. Uh, but my wife and I have been a part of Love City Church now for about six years. We were uh, one of the original couples that came out of Ryan and Steph's living room when they had started Love City Church uh, at the start. So we've been on quite a journey with them, and it's been quite a transformation in our lives. Um, And yeah, I've had the privilege of being able to be a part of a lot of different ministries as a part of Love City Church, but today is the very first time I've been able uh, to be able to prepare and to present a message with you this morning. So... I'm really excited. Uh, This is new for me, but I'm just very humbled, uh, and I think this is a great opportunity. So I don't take this lightly. Um, I'm very encouraged by my my pastor to to come up and ask if I would do this. So um, I'm just very grateful for this opportunity, which I want to give a shout out to Pastor Ryan and Steph, who are not with us right now, but they're currently in Vacaville, California, enjoying some beautiful weather. They're just visiting um, our father's church there. Uh, with Dave and Donna Patterson, who are some of the most kind people you'll ever meet. So uh, I just pray that they have safe travels um, and that you guys can find some rest while you're away. We love you and we can't wait to have you back in a couple of weeks. If you're joining us online, thank you for tuning in. I know I got a few uh, family members who are watching this service online and I got a, a brother from Texas, uh, Chase. I know you're watching as well. And um, Sherry and Terry Iverson, I know you're always there watching and as well as my dad. So thanks for tuning in. All right. Um, So last week, Ryan had kicked off a new series called Called. Uh, And today I get the the opportunity and the privilege to continue that series as we talk about the message of the gospel. So as I mentioned, this is a topic that means a great deal to me because the gospel is something that changed my life. It wasn't... um, an ideology. It wasn't finding a religion. It was the actual truthful message of what I'm about to share for you that has had such a dramatic impact in my life and in my wife's life. Um, I wish I could get more into that now, but I will just be crying the whole time and you didn't sign up to come to see that today. Um, So the gospel. Our key text here is found in Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. I had a conversation uh, quite recently with a friend and I was sharing a few of the notes of the gospel with her. And she said, you know, I've heard that Jesus died for my sins, but I don't know what that means. Have you ever tried to explain something to someone without actually understanding what it is you're talking about? Um, I, I often recall back in school, um, particularly in math, 
our teacher had a requirement that we weren't allowed just to give the answer. Right? That we had we wouldn't get full points on a test or a quiz if we had a question and we just put the answer. But she wanted to see the process, so we had to show our work. Right? We had to show the formula, the process of how we got to that answer. Right? There was an importance of having a key understanding of what it was that we were saying. And I'm sure that a lot of you are very familiar with um, Einstein's um, very popular math formula that he, he, he made famous, right? I can say E equals MC squared, right? So, like, we've heard it, we recognize it, and we know that's the answer, it's MC squared. Um, is there anyone who answered that so boldly today who would want to come up and explain to the congregation what that means in detail? Anyone. <laughs> and, and any volunteers? No. Now's your shot. See? Right? But we know it. We've heard it. We're familiar with it. And I think so often this relates to us and the message of the gospel. Right? We hear Jesus died for my sins or it's the good news. Right? We, we know the answer. We can see the equation and it makes sense. It's, we've heard it all our lives, some of us. But I think oftentimes there's the understanding, there's the in-between that we possibly don't fully grasp. And I think as Christians, as Christians who are called to share the gospel and to share our faith, this gets us stuck. Because we're called to go share something that maybe we don't have a full understanding on. Right? We're supposed to go tell people, you need the gospel, the gospel's good news. And then if they ask you, how do you come to that conclusion? We're like, Ugh. I don't know. So that's my goal this morning is instead of just talking about the problem and going to the back of the book to flip open and find the answer, I want to show my work. I want to get a good understanding, a clear understanding of what it is that we're talking about. Is anyone familiar with the term a paradigm shift? Yeah, a few people. This was a, a new term for me as I was researching this, so those who stayed silent, you're not the only one. A paradigm shift is defined as a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. I'll say it again. It's a fundamental change in our approach or underlying assumptions. It's essentially just the way we think about something drastically changes. So an illustration that's been, um, that's been shown to me that helps me understand this is there was a blind man who was getting onto a packed city bus. And as he got onto this bus, there was a gentleman there who saw his condition and stood up and offered this blind man his seat. So I asked, was this a good thing for this man to do? We, all these hesitant answers, right? I start with, it's a way you change your thinking and no one wants to answer. But yes, right? I think naturally would say, yes, it's a good thing for this man to offer up his seat. But it was actually a bad thing. The gentleman got fired because the gentleman who did this was the bus driver. Corny, corny, okay. So this illustration wasn't done to trick you, but just to help demonstrate that oftentimes if we're presented with more information or specific details about something, we can have a drastic change in our mindset, right? Our underlying assumptions can change like that. So what is the gospel? The gospel simply means good news. The gospel is the summation of what the Bible teaches. Jesus came and his ministry was to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is a message about love. 
ultimately. It's a message that God loves you and I so much. I think a lot of us are very familiar with this verse, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 8, 39 says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the message is that God loves you. That's the gospel message. God loves you. He died for you. The gospel message is a message about reconciliation. It's about rebuilding a bond that was broken between God and us. There's a famous parable called the prodigal son that Jesus teaches in Luke 15. And it's a story about a son who asks for his father's inheritance as if his father was already dead to him. And he took his inheritance and he went away and he lived a life of reckless living for earthly pleasures. And it got to a point where he eventually squandered all his wealth, all his gifts, all that he had. And he's now at a point feeding pigs so hungry that the food actually looks appealing to him. So it says in the story that he came to his senses and he determined it actually, it would be better for me to go back and be a servant in the house of my father than it would be for me in this current circumstance. So he goes back to his dad and the story just shows this beautiful reaction of a father seeing his son coming home. He sees his, he sees his son coming home from a distance and he runs to him. He takes his best robe and he gives it to him. He, he embraces him. He gives him a ring on his finger and shoes for his feet. And he says, my son, my son, who was once dead, today you are alive again. You were lost and now you are found. And they celebrate. They have a party. So the gospel is a message about reconciliation. It's the gospel message is a message about God seeking us out. It's this crazy idea that the God of the universe is actively seeking you and I out. There's another parable found in Luke 15 about sheep, right? Jesus leaves the 99 sheep who are in the field to go after the one who is lost. And he looks after him and when he finds him, he puts him on his shoulders and he goes home and he celebrates with family and friends. And it says, all of heaven rejoices. So God is searching for us. Luke 19, 10 says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came. This gospel message is a message about forgiveness. It's a message that God will forgive all of us for the wrongs that we've done to each other, the wrongs that we've done to God. The gospel is a message about hope and salvation. A message that there is a hope beyond this broken world and that there's actually a possibility that when we die, we can spend an eternity in a place called heaven where there's no suffering, where there's no pain, Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 Timothy 2 says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. That's God's desire for all of us. He wants you to understand the truth and wants you to be saved. 
Okay, so, so far, the gospel message, this sounds like good news, right? This sounds like a good message. But guys, if this message is so good, why so often when we hear it or we try to speak it, it's met with apathy or disinterest, indifference, sometimes even hostility. If you've ever watched a video or perhaps in person of a street preacher, hey, Jesus loves you, you're valuable, you're cared for, he sees you, he wants to reconcile you to relationship with him. There's a possibility for heaven for you and they're met with hostility. People swear at them and curse them and turn their backs. I agree with C.S. Lewis here when he says this, if Christianity, sorry, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So what's the issue? I'm convinced that the issue isn't with the message of the gospel itself, but it actually has something to do with us, the hearers of the message. I want to use a word that um, you're going to hear it and some people shake their heads and sigh and roll their eyes and say, oh, this again. But just bear with me because I just want to examine it a little bit. I'm convinced that the issue is this sickness called sin that the Bible talks about. You see, sin is like a disease. It distorts, it corrupts, and it destroys absolutely everything it comes in contact with. So let me expand on that. Imagine you're sitting with a blind man. And now, this is not the same blind man as before. That one, <laughs> unfortunately, passed away in a freak motor vehicle accident. Uh, no details were released to the press. But you're sitting with this blind man, and you're trying to explain to him this beautiful sunrise that you're witnessing. You sit there, and you eloquently choose the most perfect accurate and beautiful words to describe the beauty of the sun, the gradient and variety of colors as they reflect off the clouds, the stillness and the peace of what you're witnessing. But there's a disconnect, right? He can't fully understand what you're trying to say to him. Second Corinthians talks about this. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's an inability on their behalf to actually understand what you're trying to say to him. Believe it or not, but the Bible says there's actually interference in front of us that, that allows us not to understand clearly what the gospel is, the message of the gospel. The Bible also mentions another possible scenario, but why the gospel is met with such different levels of indifference and apathy. How about this one in Romans 1.18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, sin, suppress the truth. So let's look at another scenario. Perhaps you're sitting on a bench trying to describe um, this beautiful sunrise, but the person next to you actually isn't blind. But rather, they're closing their eyes so tightly to not allow any light to come in. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They're not interested. 
They have a complete indifference to what you're trying to say to them, and they're actively closing their eyes. So have you ever been so sick before that food loses its taste? Right? Or even just the thought of the food makes you want to be more sick? Right? That has nothing to do with the food itself. Because you're feeling that way towards the food doesn't mean that the food has lost its taste or its nutrients, right? But it's the sickness that's within us that distorts the food. And I'm convinced that's a big reason on why we don't understand the gospel or oftentimes it's met with indifference or apathy. You see, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So let's just look at a few ways that the Bible tells us how sin affects our lives. Let's open this up a little bit. The first thing that we see is sin corrupts creation. Now this is really obvious, right? Leave a building or a car completely unmanaged and untouched and watch what happens over the next 20 years. It breaks down, right? Our natural order unwraps into chaos. Leave fruit on the counter for two months. It decays. It rots. Romans 8 says, creation groans from the consequence of sin and eagerly awaits the time that it is freed from death and decay. How about this next one? Sin corrupts our relationships. How well does a friendship flourish when it's met with abuse? How well does your marriage function when it's constantly surrounded by lying or unfaithfulness or deceit or pride? See, each one of us can relate to this. We understand this because every single person in this room has experienced a broken relationship on some level or another. Whether it's a family member or it's a friend or if you work in customer service, you experience the brokenness of humanity every single day. Right? It's relatable. We understand that. But we are also responsible for causing that brokenness. It's really easy to look at it from the other perspective, but we also cause this. And sin creates a separation in the exact same way between us and God. He's a relational being who desires a relationship with us, but sin gets in the way and we separate. How about this? Sin corrupts our minds. Sin corrupts the way we think. If anyone has witnessed um, a family member or a friend going through some type of sickness that affects their mind, we can understand what it looks like for someone to lose the ability to think straight. Right? They can deny truth, the things that are the most obvious in them, because something is wrong. You see, Romans 1 says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it through us, through creation. So God says that every single person on the planet is without excuse for denying God because he's made it so obvious through creation. Right? We can make an argument for this of things that we know. Paintings is evidence or proof for a painter. A building is evidence or proof of an architect a builder, a car is evidence or proof for um, an engineer. Why? Because we know none of these things are able to make themselves. We have creation, 
evidence or proof of a creator. But we can talk to people and say, where did this come from? How did we get here? Well, nothing blew up billions of years ago and with no rhyme or reason, we're just all here, right? We can follow the logical train of what we know. We know paintings don't paint themselves. We witness that, we experience it. It's logical, we can follow it. But when it comes to us and creation and God, there's a disconnect. I'm telling you, sin affects the way we think. Sin dulls our conscience, right? I've heard the argument oftentimes, I don't need God to tell me what's good. I don't need a book to tell me what's right or wrong. I agree. The Bible actually says this. Right here, right in Romans, it says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them what they're doing is right. See, God has given each of us a conscience. Con means with, science means knowledge. We're all with knowledge of God's moral law instinctively on our hearts. We know it's wrong when we steal. We know it's wrong when we lie or abuse people. We have this instinctively and you don't need to read the Bible, but the Bible just teaches it. 1 Timothy 4 says that our consciences can be seared to a point where it actually loses feeling and stops working. So sin corrupts our conscience. There's a sin summary here um, that I found in Ephesians 4. It says, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Are you feeling encouraged today? Right, but this is an accurate diagnosis. Right, this is a representation. It's a spiritual ex examination of the prodigal son. Right, and that is a parable talking about us. We're sick. We have this sin sickness within us that corrupts absolutely everything that we've done. But this is not just a passive sickness. It's not just like getting the flu and saying, oh, I didn't deserve this. I'm not doing anything to deserve this. This is happening to me. But no. Have you ever been so angry that you've done something that you regret? Right? I mean, what a foolish question. Of course. I mean, we all have done that. Right? But we don't necessarily want to feel angry. That just happens to us. We feel angry. But the consequence or the action that we do out of that anger, we are still held fully responsible for. You don't go to a judge and say, Judge, yes, I ran them over with my car, but I was really angry. The anger made me do it. Therefore, I'm excused. That's not going to work. If you try it, please tell me. I'd be curious to, to hear the response of the judge, right? But we, um, we're going to be taking account of each of our actions. We're not excused just because we have a sinful nature. And Romans talks about this as well. It says in Romans 2, verse 6, he will judge, this is God, everyone according to what they have done. Here's another challenging one. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's just one of the lists. I'm sure if we're all honest, we can identify something on here that relates to us. You see, the outcome of sin is a complete distortion of our reality of life. It distorts the way we think and feel about God, the way we think and feel about each other, and as well, the way we think and feel about the gospel. And because of that, we're left with a faulty underlying assumption. Proverbs 20, verse 6. This is our faulty underlying assumption. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. You talk to the average person and you ask them, would you consider yourself a good person? The answer most of the time is yes. We believe ultimately that we are good people. And it's because of this underlying assumption that we have an apathy for the crazy idea that we need to be saved in some way, that we're sick in some way. What are you talking about? I'm good. I'm a good person. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. You see, it doesn't make any sense to prescribe chemotherapy to someone who believes they are perfectly healthy. It's illogical. I don't need that. It's foolish. But if it could be demonstrated that that person actually has a cancer inside them that's killing them, they might have a fundamental shift or change in the way they think about chemotherapy. Jesus said to them, and this is in Mark 2, 17, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, right? Those who are healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I have good, good news for you. If you are completely healthy, completely without sin, you have no need for Jesus. You don't. If you have never sinned, you have no need for Jesus. But what does the Bible say? Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus. You see, it can be really easy for us to create our own standard of goodness. It's natural for us to do. We use ourselves as the measuring rod of what's good. And we set it to whatever height we are morally and judge everyone else by that standard. I'm the first person to do this, I'll admit it. Every single time I get behind the wheel of a vehicle, I'm the only person on the road who knows how to drive. <laughs> everyone else is beyond incompetent. Right? I am the measuring rod. I am where it starts. You are judged by my driving skills and you fall short. And we do that in life too. Do we do good things? Yes, absolutely. I'm not saying we don't do good things. But our good things do not excuse our actions. You would never be in front of a court and say, Judge, okay, hold on. I know that I murdered that, that person. I know that was wrong, but... I gave $10,000 to Love City Church last year. I feed the homeless every second week. I work at a soup kitchen. I take care of my mom on the weekends when she's sick. 
right? The judge is going to look at that person and say, those are great, but you're not standing before me by the good things that you've done. You're standing before me for the wrong that you've done. Our good actions don't excuse our bad actions. We, like, we live in this culture that perpetuates this idea that truth and morality is completely relative. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. What's true for you isn't true for me. What's moral for me may not be moral for you. I want to challenge that idea a little bit today with this thought. Not every thought, idea, or belief is equally valid or true. It's not. Not every thought, idea, or belief is equally valid or true. The idea that two plus two equals four and the idea that two plus two equals five or six or yellow is not true. The idea that someone is less or more valuable based on the color of their skin is not true. I'm sorry, not true. And the idea that ultimately we are good people and the idea that we are broken, sick people in need of help are both equally not true. You see, we can't get away from the truth of reality because the truth is, is that we're sick. We're desperately sick in need of help. And Jesus, his claim is to come and restore us and to heal us. He says he wants to take the condemnation onto himself for the sins that we've committed. He wants to take the penalty for what we deserve and put that on himself so that we don't have to. To my friend's question, I've heard that Jesus died for my sins, but I don't know what that means. It means this. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. If you're standing in court and you have a stack of speeding and parking tickets against you, you've been found guilty. The judge says, this is your due. You have to pay this fine. And someone else in the courtroom stands up and says, judge, I would like to pay in full on that person's behalf. The judge can legally let you go. The judge can be just because he's upholding the law and payment is made for the wrongdoings. But the judge can also show grace and mercy to you and I by letting us go free. That's what Jesus did. We broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. You see, what I've tried to do my best this morning is articulate more information. The reality of sin in our lives so that we can have a fundamental change to the approach of the gospel, the way we think and see this good news. Because the fact that God loves good people is not good news. Of course, like we all love good people. But the fact that God loves broken, bad people, this is the good news. It says in Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this offers a free gift. 
There's nothing that we can do to earn this. We don't deserve this free gift, right? Our good works aren't gonna add up to us saying, yes, God owes me salvation. We're that criminal standing in front of the judge with no excuse. We've broken the law. We've earned our wages. The wages of sin is death. Death is what we are owed according to Jesus in the Bible. But Jesus says, I will take that payment for you if you want. So we can be the criminal in the courtroom and we can say, yes, please. I'm guilty. But yes, if you're willing to pay my fine, I'm at your mercy and grace. Please take that. Or we can say, you know what? I don't want that offer. No, thank you. We can say, judge, I appreciate it. I recognize that offer for me, but you know what? I'm willing to take it on my own. If you want to reject the gospel, God will give you the opportunity to do so. But if you accept it, Ephesians 2 verse 9 says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, but this is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. As we close this morning, I just want to give you one more thought, one more picture. There's a very prestigious restaurant. It was called A La Carte, or it was known um, as the Ritz. And this restaurant was only accessible to those who had a first-class ticket on this marvelous ship called the Titanic. And I can just imagine being in that restaurant, in that room, just enjoying the best food, having expensive, fancy drinks, listening to beautiful classical music with the highest class of friends. It's a party. It's exclusive. It's wonderful. And someone comes into that room and says, excuse me, please listen. It is of utmost importance that you stop what you are doing right now. I think you need to get outside. There is a small, wooden, uncomfortable, cold lifeboat with no food or drinks, and you need to get in it. Can you imagine the reaction of that person? It's ridiculous. You're on the legendary unsinkable ship experiencing the height of human modern creation and invention. What a joke. What a joke. You see the message of a small, humble, wooden little lifeboat is foolish to those who are headed to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, but have no idea of the circumstances that are around them. Guys, don't you see that? That's us. We love the pleasures of life and we love the enjoyment and these are good gifts, yes. But if you cling to them, you're gonna go down with them. We all have a date with death. Every single one, the statistics are unreal. It's one out of one. Every single person is going to die. Do you know when your death date is? Because I don't. People are dying every single day and it doesn't matter how old you are, something can get you, something can hit you. But we've been offered this small, little, humble, wooden lifeboat 
are you doing? Get in. So each person this morning is called to respond to this gospel message, the good news of Christ, the good news of this lifeboat, the good news that we have salvation and forgiveness. We have a choice to make. For those of you who do not have your faith in Christ, please hear me. He calls you to do two things. If you are an unbeliever today, there's two things that you must do to be saved. The first thing is repent. Repentance is a command. It says, come back. But it's also an invitation. Come home. Stop running from God. Stop indulging in the party on the Titanic, in that prestigious restaurant that you love so much. Stop running from God and come home. Change the way you think. And the second part is to put your faith in Christ. Guys, the boat's going down. Our time is limited here on this earth. And when that ship goes down, I don't care how many swimming lessons you took, you're not gonna make it. Guys, we don't have enough goodness within us. We have no goodness within us that is gonna make us right with God when it comes to judgment on the end of our days. We're gonna die, we're gonna stand before God and it's either gonna be us or Christ. Which resume do you wanna present before God? He offers to give you his resume to take all your sins so that you're clean, that you can be in that lifeboat. Guys, this is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. For those of us who have our faith in Christ, we have a calling as well. We're called not to just sit there comfortably in the lifeboat as we watch people go by. We're called not to have an understanding, right? We've been set free. We're no longer sick. So why are we just watching people go by? Church, I've been convicted so much of this message and Pastor Ryan has brought so many messages that have just nailed me on understanding why don't I share my faith? It is so important that we understand this message that we're trying to share with people. And if you understand the weight and the impact of that, it's going to drive you to want to share, share this with people because it's the best news and it matters. For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed to share that because I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Someone came to me with a lifeboat and all I did was, whoop, I got in. And let me tell you, it's not enough just to have an intellectual acknowledgement of the lifeboat, to be in the Titanic, to be in the party, looking through the window and saying, yes, I understand that that could save me and go back for another drink. Intellectual acceptance of an idea is not the same thing as putting your faith into it. I can look at a chair and I can say, yes, that chair can support me. But unless I sit down in the chair, I'm not putting my faith in it. That's the same thing with Christ. I think a lot of us can get to a point where you say, yes, I know the good news of Christ. I know the gospel. Intellectually, I, there, I agree. I'm with you. 
but there's a step of faith, of action, of us putting our faith into the object itself. And that object is Christ. Church, can you just stand with me this morning? take a moment and just bow our heads and just close our eyes just to have a personal moment just listen to what I'm saying but between you and God this moment is between you if you've heard this message today faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God if you've heard this good news of the gospel And if there's a tugging in your soul and in your spirit saying, you know what, I think I need this. I think that resonates, that makes sense with me. And you have not put your faith in God, but you want to do that today. I wanna ask something very bold of you. Just to put your hand up, just for a second, just so I can see it and then put it right back down. My goal is not to call you out to embarrass you or to bring you forward. I just want to know who I'm praying for. Come on, amen. Guys, there's hands across this room. Just to accept God's grace in our lives. I have no motivation other than my love for you guys to understand this message of what I'm sharing. I don't get paid for this. I'm not motivated by money. I'm motivated by a gospel message that has changed my life. And I know it can do the same thing for you. So for those of you who raised your hand, come on. That's bold. I want to pray with you. There's no magic words not a specific sentence or phrase you need to see. God says he knows your heart. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if that was you, if you raised your hand or if you were struck by fear or pride and you just didn't today, that's okay. Pray this prayer with me in your mind. Lord God, I, I need you. Lord, I recognize today that I am no good in front of you, God, that I'm a broken, sick person in dire need of help. So Lord, if you will have me, I just ask that you take my penalty, my sin upon your cross. God, I accept the good news. I accept your offer to take my sin. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, my prayers for the other people in this room, God, those who are saved, God, who call themselves believers, Christians, disciples of Christ. God, I pray for a boldness. God, to be able to understand what it is we're sharing with the world, that this good news has eternal impact. Lord, I pray that we'll listen, God, that we'll be convicted and we'll move with our own action to walk in the faith that we proclaim that we have, God. Lord, I pray for every broken person listening to this to understand, God, it's the grace of the Lord. It has nothing to do with our works. It's everything to do with Him.
So Lord, I pray that each person here will be blessed. God, I pray that this message will resonate, God, and that we can see changed lives and more people coming to the saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I want to thank you for giving me um, a little bit extra time. I went over in this service a little bit more than I did, and I apologize, but I want to say I appreciate you taking some time to listen to this message today, to come, to be in church. If those of you who are in the room need prayer for other reasons, whatever it may be, um, as people start heading out, let me just encourage you, just come to the front. We want to pray with you. We want to, we want to uplift you and encourage you, lay our hands on you, because the crazy thing is, is God actually cares about us and he calls us to pray, to cast our anxieties on him. So uh, church, you're dismissed. I pray that you have an absolutely blessed day. God bless. Thank you again for coming.